River Valley Community Church. We're so glad to see everyone here with us on a holiday weekend with sickness going around. So we're thankful for everyone to be here worshiping with us. Uh, in September, this September, we're going to take these four weeks and we're going to do like a mini-series, again, diving into the book of Psalms. And we're going to have four different people sharing with you their favorite psalm. And so today we're going to be diving in, kicking off this time in Psalms, looking at Psalm chapter uh, 139. And so you can uh, open your Bibles if you want to get there ahead of time. But don't worry, it'll be on the screen when we get there as well. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this day a day that you have given to us to come together as your people to praise your holy name, a day in which we can sing praises to you and pray to you and, and sit under your word and grow together as your people. Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds that we can see you for who you are and we can see what that means to us, that we can see the grace and glorious love that you have for us and that can move us to listen to you, to follow you, to be your people all the days of our life. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us, all of humanity, have a desire to be known. We want people to know who we are. We want to have people be in our lives. It's because we were created for a relationship. We're actually created for community, and we, we desire that we want it. We want that closeness, that connectedness, the friendships, that sense of community that comes from when people know you and you know them. We desire it, and people look for it in so many things. They look for it in organizations and groups, the sense of belonging that they can take this identity upon themselves. They look for it in romantic relationships as they look at someone else to complete them. Or look at to someone else to kind of give them meaning. There's a sitcom that I used to watch, and uh, my wife and I love this one scene where the main character sitting on the couch with this girl that he's starting to date, and they're staring deeply into each other's eyes, and they exchange this uh, dialogue of, I want to know you. I want to know your soul. To which she replies, what makes you cry? This is a sense of, almost absurdity that this is pointing to, that's this reality that we want to be known. We want to have a relationship where we're asking those questions and we can laugh at it, but it's true. We all want that. But there's also a fear that we all probably carry into that sense of desiring that community, but at the same time we have a fear of that community. Why? Because we're scared. What happens when people do know me? What happens when they see me for who I am? What happens when they see that I'm not who I maybe appear to be out in public? And we have this here, we carry this sense of fear into those relationships that maybe when they find out who I am, they won't like me as much as they did. Or maybe when they find out who I truly am, they won't accept me for who I am. And so we carry this fear, and into this fear, into this desire for community, steps in God who says, I've already known you, and I love you, no matter what. And so when we come to know who God is and how he loves us, it actually gives us a completion to that sense of desire we have, as well as it alleviates these fears we have about maybe people not liking us for who we are, because God steps in and says, you are mine, 
I've called you by name, and I love you in spite of who you are. It's a great thing, and I think we see that pattern and that reassurance in Psalm 139. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 139. If not, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Psalm 139, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is light with you. For you formed my inner inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than I than, than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not love those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. When you read Psalm 139, you, can't, you, you, you can grasp this, this hugeness of who God is. And his intense acquaintance with us, all of us, that he knows us so well. And it's, it's funny because usually when I look at a passage, I try to sum it up. And I try to give like a pithy little summary of what it, is, what, what it is and what it's saying and communicating to us. And this week, mine's not that pithy or short. But the summary of what I believe Psalm 139 is, this is the truth that God knows you, God is with you, God made you, and God leads you. And that's what we see from Psalm 139. We see this truth that God is present in our lives. He knows us intimately. He loves us dearly. And he is leading us in his ways when we listen to him. And that when we read Psalm 139, we see these great things about God. And these great things about God actually tell us about who we are or how he sees us. Because when we know things about God and the truth of who he is, it actually sheds light and helps us understand who we are as he sees us. One of my favorite theologians, John Calvin, <clears throat> the reformer, he wrote in, in his big Magnus Opus, The Institutes of Christian Religion, he says this, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, 
the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And he further goes on and says, It is certain that men never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looked upon God's face and then descends from, from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. This idea that I think Psalm 139 is showing us that once we know God and we see him and we see his greatness, then and only then will we truly know who we are as God has made us, as God sees us. And we see that in this psalm, in this monumental truth that God knows you, that God is with you, that God made you, and that God leads you still to this day. So we see how David starts off, and he starts off with this great truth that, that meets that desire we all have, that you are known. You're known by God. He knows you intimately. He knows you very, very well. I would even argue he knows you better than himself. David starts off with this, with this language, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And this is anthropomorphic language. This means this is where uh, describing to God human characteristics because God does not have to search. God does not have to discover something about us. He knows us intimately just because he knows all things. This is actually pointing to the fact that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. When we read these first six verses, we see this greatness of God. He knows everything about us. When we rise up, when we go down, what we're doing, all of our ways, he's acquainted with them. Why? Because he knows all things, and all that knowledge includes us, intimately us, and who we are. <clears throat> but he doesn't know us or search us like a human does. But he has poured into our lives and knows us intimately as only God can know. Charles Spurgeon, a, a pastor in England in the 1800s, says it like this when he's looking at this first part. He says, The Lord knows us as thoroughly as if he examined us minutely and had pried into the most secret corners of our being. The infallible knowledge has always existed. You have searched me, and it, and it continues to this day. <clears throat> Since God cannot forget what he has once known. There was never a moment when you were unknown to God, and there never will be a moment in which you will be beyond his observation. Let that sink in. There's never a time when you're beyond God's sight. You're never a time be, be, before, you, before he knew you or a time after which he somehow forgets you. He knows you and he knows you intimately. And when we read this passage and this, this, this personal nature of it, we see how close God is with us. The testimony again and again of Scripture about how he knows our hearts, how he knows our minds, how he knows our innermost being. Again and again we see this. We can read throughout Scripture this truth, how God is all-knowing when it involves us especially, that he knows us intimately. Psalm 44, 21 says that God knows the secrets of the heart. Jeremiah 20, uh, 21 says that he sees the mind and the heart of people. 1 Samuel 7, uh, 16, 7 talks about how he does not look at the things like man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. Again, God knows us, all humanity, intimately and personally. He knows us. And it's so personal, as David says that, that we're hemmed in before and behind. He lays his hand upon us. He knows all 
about us. And this impacts how we see the gospel, the truth of how Jesus saves us. Sometimes if you're like me, because only I, can, I feel like, can see the darkness that lies in this mind or the things that lie behind my heart, I can almost doubt and say, how could God love me? How could God want to save me? How could he desire to know me and send his son to die in my stead? How could that be? But this reassures me and impacts how I see the gospel because this says, before he even sent Jesus, he saw my wretched state. Before he loved me through sending his son, he loved me in spite of my wretched state, and in spite of my sin, and he sent his son to die for me. This describes the love of God that he knows us intimately. He has pried into the corners of our life. Nothing is hidden from his sight in relation to who we are, and he still loves us. That's the beauty of the gospel that just makes clear that when he sent his son to live for us and then to die for us and to rise for us, he did not do this unknowing. He knew who we were and he knew we needed Christ. And so he sent his son. And this should reassure us of who God is. God is not some impersonal force that somehow is just moving how he wishes. No, he's personal. He's in our lives. He's involved with who we are. He knows us. And that gives us assurance because he loves us as he knows us. That God knows you. He is with you. God made you. And God leads you to this day. When we read Psalm 139, we see this great fact that God knows us. We also see right following it, combined to that, is that God is with us. In verses 7 through 12, we see this fact that God is there. In fact, there is no place you can go where you can get away from God. He is always there. His omnipresence is a fact that he exists throughout his whole creation. It's not the idea that God is in his creation. No, he's distinct from it, but he exists everywhere. Creation is too big to contain, contain him. And so God is everywhere, which is reassuring to us because when you think about this, this means that he's always there. That in your darkest moments, he is there. When you're going through pain, he is there. When you're celebrating, he is there. He is with you no matter what. There's nothing you can do to shake him. There's nothing to do that can disgust him and make him withdraw. He is there with you. He is there because he is God, and he loves you, and he knows you. And we see this when David says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. You cannot escape God. He is there for us who know God through Jesus Christ. This is a great thing of comfort. He's always there with us and for us, leading us in our lives. It should have impact on how we see our lives and how we should operate in this life. One of a ministry I really like, they have this motto of quorum Dio, which is Latin for before the face of God. And this is this idea that when we live life, 
We actually should be live life with this attitude that we're living it before the face of God, which I think is what the psalm is saying, is that when we live life, when we're going about our, our daily activities, we live it with that attitude, with that perspective, that God is there with us, he sees us, he knows us, and so we live in light of that. Live in light of that security, that he's always there with us. Live in light of that, that drive of, hey, you know me, you're leading me, I should look towards you. We live in light of that and we operate with that mentality that God is with us. That God is present. And he's not silent. He's speaking to us through his word as the Holy Spirit is applying it to our lives. This speaks against maybe false views we can get about who God is. That some people, again, they think maybe God is more like that deist mindset that he, he might have created this universe, but it's more like a clock and he wound it up and he sent it on its way. No, he is there present with us. He's involved in his creation and in us. He's not forgetting us. He does not lose sight of who we are. Which again, it gives us that security when we think about who, who God is, that when we feel distant from him, it does not mean that somehow he has withdrawn from us, but rather our posture towards him needs to be changed to see him right there with us. When we feel lost, it's not because he has abandoned us, but because we have stopped looking for him and we need to look to him. When we feel abandoned or we feel not worthy, we need to remember what, how he loves us and how he's with us and he's always with us, which again impacts how we see the gloriousness of the gospel. That the pinnacle of God being with us, present with us, is when he sent his son to be one of us, to live with us, to, to die for us, and that's the pinnacle, and he has not given up on that, that, that momentum <clears throat> and that, that truth. Because once Jesus ascended into heaven, what does he do? He sends the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us and so we can know for a fact that not going God is present everywhere but he resides in me because I know Jesus Christ. I'm connected always to him and I'll never be abandoned. Because God knows you. God is with you. God made you. And God leads you. Amazing truth. And I think David moves on to that third point of that, that God made you to drive home this fact that God made you with this intimate process of how he formed you. Why would he ever abandon you now? Why would he ever give up on the work he started? Just look at those, these verses through uh, verse um, 13 through 16, we see this greatness of how God formed us and how God made us. It makes me think back to Genesis chapter 2 where we see God creating humanity and this, that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation and how God made the first human, the first man. He formed him out of dust and he breathed life into him in this intimate, uh, this for, intimate process and formation that he did with Adam. And what's so amazing is that now David is taking this and he's applying it to each and every one of us. That God was intimately involved in forming us and knitting us together. Just look at these, these words. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, whereas yet there was none of them. God formed us and knit us together in our mother's womb. He wove us together, our inward parts, our inward beings. That intimate connection process is an amazing thing to realize that God loves you that much and he's that intimately involved in your life. It's an amazing thing to think about the process of how we are woven together in our mother's wombs and how we, we grow and are born. And we're expecting a child here at the end of October and we got this modern, you know, wonders of modern medicine where <clears throat> we can see the baby progress through ultrasounds, and we can see how it goes from just a small little little bean to often gain features, and we just had the 4D ultrasound that we didn't get a good picture because our baby's stubborn and puts its face hand on its face, but it doesn't matter. But we see this. This is a human being woven together by God in, in, in his mother's womb. How, how wonderfully is he made? You know, I mean, that's not just speaking from a parent, but when we see that in reality of this is what a human being is, how wonderful is that? When we look around and we see the complexities of the human body and how God wove that together and he makes it work, and we're going to go, wow, how wonderful is that? <laughs> Excuse me. It brings us to this place of worship. This is the greatness of of our God, who is so powerful and yet so personally and intimately connected with us. That he wove us together and he knows us. He formed our innermost being. Why would we ever, for a second, think that he's not still as active as that in our lives? He who knows us and is with us and made us is still active in our lives. There with us, working for us to bring us to what to who we were supposed to be. This speaks, I mean, I think this even speaks to the purpose of humanity. That if God is so in Involved in forming us and growing us and there with us that we see that we have purpose. Then no human is born by mistake. No human does not have a purpose. The purpose that God has given all humanity is to reflect him. And that when we know through him, him through Jesus Christ, we do that as we're made to do that. We can start being conformed to the image of his son. And we can start being his and worshiping him as we are called to. And we see that great, that great purpose that we all have. That all of humanity bears that, that mark, that image of the divine as we're made in his image and he's involved in our lives. Which speaks to so many implications just for the world about how we should value human life that we look and we say this is what humanity is and God made it and he made it special and we should value it. That all life should be valued from in the womb to the tomb and everywhere in between, life is valuable. There's not, we get this concept of a quality of life in our day and age that somehow if you lose some abilities or characteristics that you're no longer valuable. And how absurd is that? When we look at the scripture and it says, God made every human, human in his image. 
He knit him together. And so there is no value, there's no quality of life. No, life is life. And life should be protected. And historically, you see Christians doing that from the very beginning <coughs> in the Roman Empire when people would practice emphasize and place infants out to, be, to die of exposures. The church was known for picking them up and caring for them and saying this life is valuable because God made it. And again and again you see that. The hospitals that are formed across this, this world, they bear Christian names for a reason because Christians were on the forefront of making sure people got care because they valued human lives. Again and again you see that historical drive and it's a truth that we get from the word of God. <coughs> that God made us. He values human's life, and so we should value human life. And this drives us, like it, it should drive us, like it drives David, to a place of worship. We see that <coughs> in verses 17 through 18. How precious are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them? If I would outcount them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This idea of this, it drives him to a place of worship. He can't even comprehend how great God is and his thoughts that he would spend his time thinking of him, of humanity. And it drives him to a place of worship and it should drive us to a place of worship when we see the greatness of God. We want to know him and worship him. We see his love and his care for us. We want to respond with all of who we are. <clears throat> because God knows you. And God is with you. God made you. And God leads you. Amazing thing to just bask in, and meditate on these truths of who God is and how he loves you. But then, since we got to say, oh, well, thank you. Someone got annoyed with my call. But then, because we want to stay true to the text, we can be honest, and we hit verses 19 through 22, and we go, David, why did you have to ruin the psalm? David, why did you have to go there? just me? Maybe. But we hit this, this, these passages in, in these verses in 19 through 22 after this great talk about who God is, how he, is, he's, he knows us and he's with us and he made us. And then David goes, man, slay the wicked. Man, God, I hate those who hate you. And we're like, David, cool your jets, man. But no, you have to realize that he's speaking from a place of loyalty to God. That he's speaking from a place where he says, man, I see you and I know you. I know the truth of who you are. And I see those who go against that truth. In fact, I see those who, who use your name in vain, who should know you, but they go the other way. I see those who probably even use your name in evil ways. I see those who do not acknowledge you and they're hurting people and I cannot stand and I want justice done. That he's looking upon these people and says, God, I know you and you know what's going on with them. That you would judge them as they need to be judged and he's speaking from that place 
that he wants the justice of God to be done. But we read that and it sounds so harsh, it sounds so jarring, and it sounds almost out of step with the rest of the psalm. But David is completing the circle of, you're there, you're present. And why, God, are you not acting when people are hurting people? Why, God, are you not making sure your justice is done? I pray that you are. I'm following you. I see you and I want to be yours. And when you read this, we're like, was this, does this mean when he speaks about how he, he hates those who hate him, does that mean that Christians, believers in who God, who God is and who Jesus is, that we can't befriend those who don't know him? I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's, we're supposed to actually be in people's lives so they can see who God is and we can help lead them to know who God is. But rather what this is saying is that we should not be so involved in the world that does not know God's ways that we no longer can speak the truth to them because we are just like them. And Charles Spurgeon, that, that pastor, he again meditating on this passage says, to love all men with benevolence is our duty, but to love any wicked man with complacency would be a crime. To hate a man for his own sake or for any evil done to us would be wrong. But to hate a man because he is a foe of all goodness and the enemy of all righteousness is nothing more or less than an obligation. This idea that when we, when David's speaking this way, he's saying he's, he's moving against this idea that somehow we're just going to drift into being just like the ways of the world. He says, no, I'm following God. I'm defined by him. And I'm not going to be defined by the ways of the world. And I want that justice done. Why? Because David knows who God is. The God who is there and the God who is not silent as he speaks the truth through his word to his people. That God knows you, God is with you, God made you, and God leads you. This is why David ends the psalm with that invitation. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He ends the psalm with that great invitation. Lead me, Lord. Search me. See if I measure up. See if I'm somehow going astray. But lead me, Lord. Show me your ways that I can follow you. It makes sense. If you, like David, know this God, the God who knows all things, the God who made you, the God who's always there, you would automatically say, this is of someone who can lead me better than myself. This is someone who knows more than I know. This is someone who can see more than I know. This is someone who knows me better than I know myself and knows the ways in which I need to be led. And so David comes to that solution of, hey, search me, know me. Lead me in your ways. Why? Because you are the only one who can do it to perfection. Lead me, he says. <clears throat> but it's also not just an, uh, a word of invitation that God can lead you, but it's a word of devotion. That David is responding to these truths of who God is and says, I want to be yours so much that you can search me and know me, you can try my thoughts, and I will not fall short because I am yours. That is who I want to be. That's what I want to be known as. 
It's an invitation of devotion. If this is who I am, I'm going to seek to follow you to that extent, to that standard. As we, as Christ followers, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, we know we can't do that perfectly. We want to. We desire to have that devotion that David had, but we know we will try and we will fail and we will get beset by guilt when we do, but because we stand on the other side of the cross and resurrection, we know the truth of Jesus Christ, and we know he did that perfectly, and because he did that perfectly, we can rest in him, and we know that we can be led by him, and we can follow him, and we can be safe in the security that he provides as he fulfills the law perfectly and the requirements. And we still then have that invitation and act of devotion that we say, Jesus, help me to follow God perfectly. Help me to follow your Father, our Father, how he would call us to follow him. We do that because just like David, we see who God is. We say he is the one who can lead me perfectly. He is the smarter one. He is the the one who's there. He is the one who knows all. He knows me well enough to do so because we know that God knows you. God is with you. God made you and God leads you. So what does that mean for our lives when we read this psalm and we see this invitation for God to to lead us? This statement of devotion that we should be following him, looking to him. I always offer three general principles that I think should help us, motivate us on how we now apply this to our lives. What does it mean to now follow God as the psalm is saying? And the first one is that we trust God. Seems simple, but that's what David is saying is we trust God. We trust God as the one who knows us. We trust God as the one who made us. We trust God as the one who is there with us. We trust him. We actually see God for who he is, that we open up the word and we see him for who he is and respond with a desire to know him and to trust him. And we trust that when he says something and he directs us in the ways to go, that his ways are better than our ways. That we trust God that God knows more. God knows what's best. And so we not, don't just trust God, but actually we trust in how he directs us. We trust in how, with the principle he's given us through his word. And so we trust God by word and spirit. Meaning that when we open up the Bible, we trust that God has given us the direction in which we need to go. That he's given these great truths of the gospel of how he saved us through Jesus Christ. But he also has given these commands to help spur us on towards what we're supposed to do. And we trust him that we can know the truth of not only who he is, not only how he has saved us, but now how we respond through the word of God. And we trust that he has given us the Holy Spirit now through Jesus Christ so that we can now apply these words to our lives that can empower us to live for him as we're called to live for him. And so we trust God in all of these things. And that's what it looks like when we start to apply Psalm 139 to our lives, and we seek to be led by God. We know Him. We know that He is that His ways are best, and whilst we know that we can know His ways through His Word, as the Spirit applies it to our lives. So, what would that look like in your life to once again dive into that mindset that David gives us here on seeing God for who He is? and then trusting him and walking in his ways. What changes 
would that apply to your, would happen, make it, would make it in your life to know this truth and start living it out day by day? Because we're reassured again and again, God knows you. God is with you. God made you. And God leads you. Join me in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. That when we read it, we can know it and we not only know it, but through it we know you. That we can respond to what you've done for us and we can respond with our own life. That we can see the great truths that you do and have given us everything we need for life and godliness in your Son. Lord, I just ask that you can help lead us in the ways we need to go, that we can be your, yours in all I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you please stand for this last song?